Welcome to season two, episode three of Man in the Making, with former monk Rajan Shankara and myself, Rokas. Thank you for joining me, and over to you, Rajan. All right, Rokas. Um, hello, everyone. Yeah, we're going to get into Stoic philosophy. Um, we're going to talk about Epictetus and try not to make it too complicated uh, and and see if we can approach his more logical and practical philosophies that will help us in life. Epictetus was a Greek Stoic philosopher, according to Wikipedia. So he was born as a slave, and his name actually means gained or acquired. (laughs) So um, Epictetus was literally born into slavery and rose out of slavery to be one of the greatest philosophers to have ever lived. And I'm not the only one to say that. That's a common uh, belief. So it's, it's not so uh, subjective um, or biased. It's, it's an actual um, well-known concept. And, and his work is taught in, in philosophy around the world. And you, you will miss out on most of Stoic philosophy if you miss uh, Epictetus, the work of Epictetus. Now, the work is very simple. He didn't write anything. His disciple, his main disciple did. So the main work is called The Discourses of Epictetus. And it's basically a book of, from what I gather, um, people people coming to see him um, and uh, asking him questions and him teaching them. Uh, also, he had a school for philosophy. And I gather the the student was just sitting there and and writing down um, some of the lectures he said when he didn't actually have sort of one-on-one therapy with uh, family, couples, individuals, and things like that. I mean, you have to imagine back then these people, uh, Epictetus and and, uh, Plato and Aristotle and and people who had these schools of philosophy and uh, how to live a good life, they must have been the, the, the therapist for that time. And so it's, it's really an interesting read when you um, get into it because it's, it's people's issues of those days going to these people and uh, going to these teachers and asking them, you know, how to better understand a situation. And, and so luckily his student wrote these things down. Then you have the Enchiridion, um, which I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but that's how I say it. It just means, um, the, you know, it's, it's just uh, translated as the golden sayings of Epictetus. And it's his work of the discourses boiled down into um, aphorisms or... Um, sayings you know short paragraphs instead of um the discourses which are long chapters um and not necessarily an easy read each chapter is 
um, for example, chapter two is how a man on every occasion can maintain his proper character. So that that's the title of the chapter. And then it goes on to part of his lecture and then he'll break out into conversation uh, with someone else or give an example of someone he knows and things like that. Um, the discourses are a good read if you have patience and are willing to take the time to understand it. Uh, the Enchiridion um, is better for someone who is just looking for a quick cut philosophy, something to, re to read for the day. Um, you know, you could read one of them a day and, and get through them in uh, probably a month. So those are the main things that he is known for. His teacher was Musonius Rufus, who is a famous Stoic philosopher and um, is also worth um, a read. He did a lot more work on marriage and relationships in the Stoic philosophy, which is, uh, is considered extremely practical um, as opposed to some other Stoic philosophers who might speak more lofty, like Seneca, uh, have different ideals that are harder to achieve. Um, the lineage of uh, Musonius Rufus and Epictetus can be brought into daily life as soon as you read them. So um, I just wanted to give that intro in case uh, the, one of the listeners has, has never heard of uh, these people. All right, so when we get into Stoic work, um, when we get into Stoic work, we have to kind of understand detachment. Stoics are known for their ability to detach from the world around them, also known as the appearance of things. and that's been extremely helpful for people throughout history because when we can detach from an object or a situation in life, we tend to be relieved. We tend to be relieved of the pain of, of that thing that it can give us. So Epictetus spent his time preaching about detachment basically. And he starts chapter one of his discourses by saying of the things which are in our power and not in our power. So that's chapter one, very basic and clear. Um, and it starts to get, it starts to get a little uh, wordy, a little verbose and complicated, but if you boil the meaning down, we're going to, we're going to try to boil the meaning down and um, see if we can make sense of what he's saying here. Of all the faculties you will find not one which is capable of contemplating itself and consequently not capable either of approving or disapproving. All right, so let's just take that first paragraph or that first sentence and of all the faculties. So faculties um, is a uh, philosophical way of, of saying uh, your your innate senses, what you're born with um, in perception, 
uh, smell, hearing, you know, um, seeing, things like that. Those are your, those are your faculties of which you know we're born with. Uh, another way to describe that is that he'll get into later is pursuing and avoiding objects, desire, and using things outside of us. So it, it gets a little deeper. Um, it starts to get into interest, personal interest. And we're, we're all born with that. So I'll read that again with that in mind. Of all the faculties, you will find not one which is capable of contemplating itself and consequently not capable of approving or disapproving. Okay, so things outside of ourselves don't necessarily uh, say I am good or I am bad. They, they don't have that capability. That's what he's saying. He continues, how far does the grammatic art possess the contemplating power? So how far can English, for example, as one language, possess the contemplating power? As far as forming a judgment about what is written and spoken and how far music and as far as judging about melody. So basically he goes on to give examples. Uh, music is very common also in these ancient um, teachings. Socrates did that a lot. What faculty will they tell you? That which contemplates both itself and all other things. And what is this faculty? The rational faculty. For this is the only faculty that we have received which examines itself. What it is and what power it has and what is the value of this gift and examines all other faculties. So he's basically saying, Music in and of itself doesn't say it sounds good. Um, a building will never say that it's strong or weak. It's our own judgment, uh, our own rational abilities that provide judgment to objects or to the appearances of things. So this is a very uh, foundational point between all of uh, Stoic teaching. Reading on, evidently it is the faculty which is capable of judging of appearances. What else judges of music, grammar, and the other faculties? Proves their uses and points out the occasions for using them. So music, language, and everything else outside of ourselves, they don't say how they should be used, they don't say what's beautiful about them, what's ugly about them. Nothing, nothing outside of you says that, not even other people, okay? And, and we've all been there. We've all said the this, this statement, uh, he bothers me so much, or he makes me angry, okay? So that's actually not true. That, that that's literally a false statement. The other person or the other thing does not give themselves any or, or give you any 
way to, to, to respond to them, to feel. A person doesn't say, what I'm about to say is, is going to anger you, so become angry. You know, what, what, what they may say is, you know, I'm going to tell you something that might offend you or, you know, are you sitting down or things like that. But if you're able to understand that, that you can perceive things outside of yourself any way you want, then, then anything someone else does doesn't have to affect you. Okay, just like how classical music is considered beautiful by um, society, you know, historically. Um, but not everyone finds classical music beautiful because it is not true that classical music is beautiful. It, it's, it's true that some people perceive classical music to be pleasing or beautiful but not everyone. So it's not objective, it's subjective. And what, what will make one person angry will not make another person angry. So right off the bat, Epictetus is asking people to realize that nothing in and of itself has an adjective assigned to it. There is no qualifier to anything except for, for what you give it. And you have control over that faculty. Okay, so he goes on to say, must I then alone have my head cut off? What would you have all men lose their heads that you may be consoled? Will you not stretch out your neck as Lateranus did at Rome when Nero ordered him to be beheaded. For when he had stretched out his neck and received a feeble blow, which made him draw it in for a moment, he stretched it out again. And a little before, when he was visited by Epaphroditus, Nero's freedman, okay, so these are slaves and slave owners, who asked him about the cause of offense which he had given. He said, if I choose to tell anything, I will tell your master. So he's giving a story about someone who was sentenced to death. Okay. And when he found out, he, he exposed his neck without flinching. What then should a man have in readiness in such circumstances? What else than this? What is mine and what is not mine? And what is permitted to me? And what is not permitted to me? I must die, must I then die lamenting? So he's saying our own death is even something that we can detach from, right? So our own life is something that we can stand back from and live in the third person instead of the first. And we can observe everything instead of be right inside of it. And that takes a lot of courage. It takes, it takes trust in knowing that everything outside of you will go on just fine with you leaving it alone. So we tend to get involved. We tend to get attached with all of these little things. And we think that our involvement is going to somehow um, change it or change the world. And it may, but it will. It's also true that it may be fine without you. An argument may be okay if you don't add in your opinion. So a lot of times in life, I find that, 
we can use this principle and, and sort of say silent and, and just watch and observe and see how things around you um, go on without your opinion. And, you know, we can live a lot, a lot more peaceful uh, life that way. And I have clients come up to me um, and the first thing they do is they'll, they're having a bad day because they're complaining about the way someone is uh, texting them to use a recent example, maybe a client of theirs is giving them a hard time, but it's up to them to decide how to feel about those texts and, and about the way they're treating them. And a lot of times you can just let things go and it'll blow over and the person may even apologize. It's not true in every case. So he goes on with this example, must I then die lamenting? I must be put in chains. Must I then also lament? I must go into exile. Does any man then hinder me from going with smiles and cheerfulness and contentment? Tell me of the secret which you possess. I will not, for this is in my power. So this is someone who was actually a slave and who has the actual experience of being, uh, you know, excluded from things and, and actually being put in chains. And even uh, the theory of his own um, crippled leg is that his master broke it one day. And he's saying that he can choose to have smile, a smile on his face and cheerfulness in his demeanor and contentment throughout. It's his decision. I will throw you into prison, he gives an example. My poor body, you mean. I will cut your head off. What then have I told you that my head alone cannot be cut off? These are things which philosophers should meditate on, which they should write daily in which they should exercise themselves. So essentially, he's detaching from body and calling himself a spirit. You know, you can put the body in prison, but it's not him. He is a greater intelligence. And it's that, what he calls the rationality faculty, that ability to choose, that intelligence overseeing the operating system. And that's what he's saying he is, and he has control over, and then no one else can take that away. This, it is to have studied what a man ought to study. To have made desire, aversion, which is kind of uh, not wanting something, or, you know, you can, you can be fearful of something and wanting to avoid it. <clears throat> Free from hindrance and free from all that a man would avoid. I must die if now I am ready to die. If after a short time I now dine because it is dinner, after this I will then die. How? Like a man who gives up what belongs to another. And that's how he ends the first chapter. Um, and that's a common thought in, in uh, many philosophical circles. Uh, and and um, sects throughout history um, in Hindu literature 
uh, it said that the body should be worn like a sandal. Um, there's there's a sense of there's a sense of detachment that brings freedom, and you no longer have to be controlled by things outside yourself. In chapter two, how a man on every occasion can maintain his proper character. To the rational animal only is the irrational intolerable. But that which is rational is tolerable. Blows are not naturally intolerable. When you have the opinion that it is rational, you go and hang yourself. In short, if we observe, we shall find that an animal man is pained by nothing so much as by that which is irrational, and on the contrary, attracted to nothing so much as to that which is rational. Now, these kind of things have to be broken down um, a few words at a time in order to understand, but at the same point goes throughout. Some people will find something intolerable, while others won't. So, you get to choose how you want to feel. And this is extremely liberating. Um, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, something we should go over on another episode, uh, came to the same conclusion uh, while he was in the uh, concentration camps run by Nazis in Germany. And his wife was burned alive, and he realized that there was a difference between liberty and freedom. And while he did not have the same liberties as his Nazi captors, he had freedom to make decisions inside of himself. He had the freedom to choose his response. And that's an extreme example. But if he can do that, with an extreme example, then surely we can be stuck in traffic and not get angry. We can deal with people that appear to be irritating, or we can deal with um, blame, and we can we can put up with the minor, you know, injustices in life all we want. We can choose how to react all we want. Chapter two is um, a large story with many examples of athletes and um, judges and stories. So something that's common um, in Epictetus's writing is comparing to Olympians. And to be fit of body um, was considered a big deal. And that everyone should be uh, in some good shape physically so that they could also mentally be in shape. Chapter three is how a man should proceed from the principle of God being the father of all men to the rest. If a man should be able to assent to this doctrine as he ought that we are all sprung from God in a special manner, 
and that God is the father of both men and of gods, I suppose that he would never have any ennoble or mean thoughts about himself. So I think the way I explain Epictetus's Enchiridion um, is that he considers uh, men to be divine, humans to be divine. And it's that, it's that ability to choose and have the rational faculty that proves it. So Caesar was the emperor at the time. But if Caesar should adopt you, no one could endure your arrogance. And if you know that you are the son of Zeus, which Zeus to them was God, will you not be elated? Yet we do not so. But since these two things are mingled in the generation of man, body in common with the animals and reason and intelligence in common with the gods, many incline to this kinship. So he's, he's giving comparisons of reason and intelligence to divinity and being affected by body and, and mind to be like the animals. So one of the biggest takeaways of this chapter is that man is not an animal. Man has divinity because he has the faculty um, of, of reason and he can choose. Since then, it is of necessity that every man uses everything according to the opinion which he has about it. Those, the few who think that they are formed for fidelity and modesty and a sure use of appearances, have no mean or noble thoughts about themselves. But with the many, it is quite the contrary. So most people, most people can't understand this philosophy. They don't think they're ha they have a choice. And so if you understand that, and if you start to practice it, it, it makes you stand out. He goes on, for they say, what am I? A poor, miserable man with my wretched bit of flesh. Wretched indeed. But you possess something better than your bit of flesh. Why then do you neglect that which is better? And why do you attach yourself to this? So as everyone who experiences um, a better way of life to them, uh, they want other people to understand it as well. But this is very challenging for most people. They, they attach onto things that they're aware of. You know, they attach onto the words of their boss. And they, they get affected with personally. They get hurt by a lot of things. But in, in reality, they're the ones allowing the hurt. He ends, through this kinship with the flesh, some of us inclining to, be, inclining to become like wolves, faithless and treacherous and mischievous. Some become like lions, savage and bestial and untamed. But the greater part of us become foxes and other worse animals. So foxes are kind of sneaky. For what else is a slanderer and a malignant man than a fox or some other more wretched and meaner animal? See then and take care that you do not become some one of these miserable things. So these people, uh, Epictetus, his teachers, 
um, Plato and especially Aristotle in uh, the Nicomachean Ethics. It was a, as a whole book on, on how a, someone should be. Um, they kind of uh, begged people to realize that, that they're better. They can be better. You can be fulfilled. You can be, you can be high-minded. You can achieve what you want because you have the ability to. And they're constantly questioning uh, rhetorically in these writings. Why? You know, why would you act the way you act when you could be divine? And he kind of uh, goes on with that in chapter four of progress or improvement. He who is making progress, having learned from philosophers that desire means the desire of good things, and aversion means the aversion from bad things, having learned too that happiness and tranquility are not attainable by man otherwise than by not failing to obtain what he desires and not falling into that which he would avoid, such a man takes from himself desire altogether and defers it, and he employs his aversion only on things which are dependent on his will. So what he's saying is, uh, we can choose what we want, and we can cho we can choose what we desire. And the challenge with uh, the wor a world of duality, um, the same things that we want, we don't get, and then we become unhappy. So the thing that we wanted to make us happy all along is going to make us unhappy. That that's kind of a duality, um, a dual nature in things. Um, we can avoid that. And he, he literally says, by deferring desire. So, in other words, let other people uh, desire things. Try to, try to more often than not um, just observe while enjoying something. So, I'm not asking people to, to move to the jungle and, and, and live in a cave. What, what I'm saying and what Epictetus says is, that we can achieve what we want and we can still enjoy life without being destroyed when it ends and, and understanding that all things are temporary. So for example, um, the seasons are temporary. You may enjoy winter. You may uh, enjoy snowboarding. But know that winter ends eventually, and that one day you won't be able to snowboard or ski or swim in the warm summer months. And that eventually turns to ice. Water eventually turns to ice. It's not that you avoid the thing that may cause um, unhappiness, but you, you go into it knowing that it's temporary. And when it's time to let it go, as Epictetus said in chapter one, like the body, you let it go. How? Like something that belongs to someone else. For if he attempts to avoid anything independent of his will, he knows that sometimes he will fall in with something which he wishes to avoid and he will be unhappy. Now, if virtue promises good fortune and tranquility and happiness Certainly also the progress towards virtue is progress towards each of these things, for it is always true that to whatever point the 
perfecting of anything leads us. Progress is an approach towards this point. He, he's basically saying what you really want to go for, our goals in life should be virtue, tranquility, permanent things that no one can take away from us. What is the product of virtue? He says tranquility. So if we can be uh, even-minded and calm in the midst of life, then we will achieve a stoic perspective. And, and we've all, you know, we've heard people be described as stoic maybe. Um, you know, if he has a stoic demeanor, she was very stoic when she heard the news. It's, it's not having an immediate reaction. It's the ability to not act yet when someone tells you something or when you hear about something. Or if you hear that there's a problem at work, if there's uh, an exam to be studied for and something changed all of a sudden, you have to study another section. Or you take a test exam and you failed and you have to actually do a lot more than you thought. You can see these things for what they are outside of yourself and, and they don't have to change you. They don't have to uh, shock your system. You can just observe. And that's not easy to do. But it is possible, and we have to practice. And that in and of itself, that practicing of tranquility, Epictetus is saying that it's, it's, a, it's a worthy undertaking. And in fact, um, all philosophers would say the same thing. He goes on to say in other chapters uh, how to be careful from uh, teachers, how to know which is a good teacher and what is not. Um, there was a theory um, back then, which is true, uh, not a theory, but there was a, you know, imposters. Um, for example, in today's world, um, there are, are imposters and charlatans um, in every field. You have to be careful. So back then, one of the most um, prominent fields was being a teacher. You know, and you had people walking around, going to homes, doing homeschooling, home philosophical schooling, and they were called sophists. And Socrates uh, and Epictetus alike uh, warn against these people. So you have to be careful that someone actually understands what they're teaching before they teach it. Another chapter, that the faculties are not safe to the uninstructed. In as many ways as we can change things which are equivalent to one another in just so many ways we can change the forms of arguments and in argumentation. So he gives an example. This is an instance. If you have, if you have borrowed and not repaid, you owe me the money. If you have not borrowed and you have not repaid, then you do not owe me the money. To do this skillfully is suitable to no man more than to the philosopher. For it is an imperfect syllogism. It is plain that he who has been exercised in the perfect syllogism must be equally expert in the imperfect also. Okay, now this is like where it starts to get, you have to put this down and start looking up words and understanding things. Syllogisms are um, 
the last point that I want to touch on for from Epictetus, um, which I learned that from. So basically, if uh, if Mary has brown hair um, and she's angry, all people with brown hair are angry. That's a that's a uh, a false syllogism. So a syllogism is just a comparison of things using like. Um, characteristics and it's not true right um, another big one that I use with clients is uh, well and a lot of people use is uh, I was cheated on by my spouse therefore all my future spouses will cheat on me it's not true right not not everyone cheats so that would be a false syllogism to a philosopher and we have to be careful with false things due to patterns. Just because something's a pattern doesn't mean that it's, it's an absolute truth and that um, we still have to remain detached from patterns and not just assume, right? That's where assumption um, kind of gets uh, its uh, pejorative meaning or negative connotation. No one likes assumptions because just because there was a pattern of something doesn't mean it's going to continue. And what Epictetus is trying to say that to the one who observes life in a detached and stoic way, they try not to um, create um, self-fulfilling prophecies. You could say, you know, if you believed that you got cheated on twice in relationships and that all future relationships were going to be uh, miserable and unfaithful, then you would never, you know, you would live in misery, right? Based on a, a false comparison, based on a false pattern. And it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy, meaning whatever you believe in, you tend to create. So you have to be, be you have to be careful with what you believe in. That's, just uh, the surface of Epictetus, uh, he goes on to talk about many different lifestyle choices and the way to uh, see them. Okay, so he goes on with uh, chapter titles such as of natural affection, of contentment, how everything may be done acceptably, what philosophy promises, that the logical art is necessary, how we should behave to tyrants, that's a good one, how reason contemplates itself, how we should behave to tyrants, 55. Let's actually end with that. That sounds pretty good. Because we all know tyrants, um, and no one wants to keep reacting to them. We, we want to master these techniques so that um, toxic people uh, in our life, you know, don't affect us as much. If a man possesses any superiority or thinks that he does, when he does not, such a man, if he is unrestricted, I'm sorry, if he is uninstructed, will of necessity be puffed up through it. Okay, so he's talking about ego, right? His ego will be puffed up. Um, and he's talking about narcissists. If a man possesses superiority or thinks that he does, but he does not, 
So such a person uninstructed will be, you know, their ego will be inflated. And he's talking about narcissism. You know, narcissism existed several thousand years ago. Um, and people knew what to do about it. And every generation goes through their own iteration of narcissists and how to deal with them. He goes on to say, for instance, the tyrant says, so he calls them a tyrant, says, I am a master of all. And what can you do for me? Can you give me desire, which shall have no hindrance? How can you? Have you the infallible power of avoiding what you would avoid? Have you the power of moving towards an object without error? So he's asking this person, he's rhetorically asking this narcissist, you know, can you do all these things? You know, are you really that great? How do you possess this power? What is it then that disturbs and terrifies the multitude? Is it the tyrant and his guards? I hope not. It is not possible that what is by nature free can be disturbed by anything else or hindered by any other thing than by itself. That's the main um, core of this chapter and of this book and of this philosophy. How do you know, let, let's turn that into language of today. How do you, uh, what disturbs uh, the many, you know, is it narcissists or is it monsters? Is it terrible people? And he says, no, it is not possible that what is by nature free Okay, so it's not possible for a free mind can be disturbed by anything else or hindered by any other thing than by itself. If you're bothered by someone, you're allowing that bothering to go to, to happen. If a narcissist is, you know, reigning over you and controlling your life, it's actually you who is, who is allowing it. Um, a quote that ties into that and to what you're speaking in the first chapter is we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. And that's also from Seneca. Yes. Yes. That's a beautiful um, quote. Things in our mind are always uh, worse than they are in real life. I would say most, most always, you know, you could, you could then, you know, some people will, <clears throat> give me an extreme example and you can always uh, quote an extreme example but most of the time uh our mind and imagination uh makes things the makes the world of things when it's actually um like the size of a mustard seed that's a that's a famous uh asian uh proverb um and a mustard seed is extremely small smaller than a, a penny yeah, absolutely. So that's what I love about Stoicism. It's very practical. Uh, it was these things were written thousands of years ago, but they're you know right there in the middle of the thing, page fifty-five. He's telling you how to deal with narcissists and monsters and people that try to overpower you. Okay, so uh, towards the end, he talks about people who gossip. Um extremely beneficial but uh, 
very long. This is a very long work. I recommend it. Um, you know, learn, learn a thing or two about detaching from these things, things we fear, things we want, uh, people we're afraid of or situations in the future that haven't even happened yet. Uh, he even goes on to talk about the greatness of exercise, what solitude is, how we should contemplate everything. You know, how to deal with family, how to deal with cynics, um, critics. For the, to the, one of the chapters is called, To Those Who Read and Discuss for the Sake of Ostentation. So, so basically, um, you know, people who are putting on a front and want to appear uh, higher uh, and smarter than they actually are. Um, this is amazing. I, I haven't read this in many, many years, but those are the, um, those are the chapters that I wanted to cover um, and, and how, and give an example of how it is kind of complicated the way it's written. But if you, if you pause, if you read slowly and do a few Google searches on, on what some of those words mean, um, it'll become quite clear and it might save your life. It might save, uh, your depression. Um, one notable example is, um, a famous prisoner of war. Uh, survived uh, in the U.S. Uh, he was a, a U.S. general. Uh, he survived by the teachings of Epictetus that, you know, you can detach from people that are trying to hurt you and, or hurting you, and um, you can actually be free mentally, and that will reign supreme over any amount of physical freedom. 